Okay, good morning, everyone. <laughs> Didn't know if my voice would work, actually, so it's <laughs> a good start. Um, I hope you've, you've had a, a good night, as, as good a night as one can have in an unfamiliar place and a new bed, and that you're finding yourself just beginning to sink into uh, yourselves and into this, this space and, and time. Well, as you know, our theme over these days is contemplation, faith, and the active life. And in particular, we're focusing on how meditation relates to and transforms our action, and on how contemplative communities of faith might contribute life and healing in our troubled times. And today's, the title I've given today's talk is Faith as the Ground of Action. It seems to me, as I was kind of reflecting on this, preparing, that when we think about the relationship between contemplative practice and the active life, there are three aspects to consider. One is to do with the agent the person who's doing the action. How does meditation affect who and how I am and so my capacity to act well? The second aspect is to do with the field of action itself. How does contemplation affect how I see the nature of reality, the context in which I'm acting? And the third aspect is to do with particular acts or deeds. What particular forms of action arise from contemplative practice and the life of faith? Well, in my talk last night, I was focusing particularly on how meditation affects the agent, the person acting. <clears throat> I spoke about the detoxifying, clarifying effects of meditation and how contemplative practice over time transforms the egoic, self-oriented, acquisitive habits, to use Rowan Williams' phrase, and how in this way it enlarges our capacity to act out of a truer perception of things, a truer relatedness to things. As you well know, John Main taught that this process of clarifying our vision and transforming our attachments isn't something we do just once and get to the end of and, right, that's sorted, off we go. Rather, we must return again and again to this work of detaching, of letting ourselves go. This place which he describes as a place of poverty or self-dispossession, place of humility. So this is, this is the work of a life. And it's the purpose of our daily practice of silence, 
and of our commitment to saying the mantra from the beginning to the end of our meditation. We're always having to keep returning to this, this place. But that was what I focused on a bit last night, this transformation of the person who's doing the action. This morning I want to focus a bit more on how contemplative practice affects our sense of the field or the context of our action. Of course, when we speak of the context for action, we can speak at different levels. There's our immediate circumstances and the particular opportunities or challenges they offer. So part of the context for my action is my personal situation. Do I take this job? Do I let go of this argument? Do I speak this truth? Do I leave my homeland? All the, 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 the context, the personal circumstances which, which give us our field of action, if you like. And the context for our action also includes some bigger situational things, some of the historical cultural, political circumstances in which we live. And I touched on some of those last night when I spoke about, you know, the contemporary political situation, some of our contemporary institutional settings. That too is part of the context for our action. But there's also a deeper, more pervasive context for our action. Iris Murdoch, the English novelist and philosopher, once pointed out that the choices we make and the actions that seem possible for us are profoundly shaped by our underlying picture of the world, the way we see things as a whole. And Albert Einstein said the same kind of thing he said, the most important question you can ever ask is whether the world is a friendly place. This, this is a deep background picture of reality. And it can remain constant across a whole range of different life circumstances. So different things can be going on in my immediate personal field of action but I can have this underlying sense of the way things are. And it's the question of this deep background picture and its relationship to meditation that I want to focus on today. You might like to take a moment to, to ask yourself about your background or underlying picture of reality. This is harder to do than it sounds. It's kind of like a vox pop. So, so tell me, what's your deep underlying picture of reality? Uh, uh, because I think often we're not really aware that we are picturing the world in a particular way. But sometimes we can get a glimpse of it or we can begin to get in touch with our tacit sense of things by looking at how we act. 
So here are some examples. Some of us are habitually cautious. As if at some deep level we see the world as vaguely unsafe or threatening, perhaps. Some of us are compulsively competitive, as if we see life as a scarce commodity and others as our rivals. Some of us consistently over-dramatise, as if the world by itself or as if we by ourselves aren't quite interesting enough or large enough. Some of us are trying very hard to be good. It's a particular affliction of religious people. <laughs> trying very hard to be good or successful. As if we don't really trust we are okay. So maybe you recognise or you glimpse one or more of these characteristic in your responses to life. But, and maybe, maybe there are other things. This is not an exhaustive list. There are deep cultural pictures too. Modern Western culture has tended to see the natural world as a mere backdrop to the human drama. And that shows up in our actions too, in our willingness to exploit its resources or to prefer our comfort to its flourishing and to denigrate the wisdom often of indigenous peoples. So the point I'm wanting to make is, is this, that our pictures of how things most deeply are, our imaginative sense of life, they may not be front of mind for us. We might not be explicitly conscious of them even, but they are operative. They profoundly shape our experience including the choices we even see as available to us and the choices we make, how we act. Well, John Main says that the practice of meditation transforms our vision of reality at this level. It changes our basic imaginative sense of the context in which we live our lives. How? Because it leads us into the direct experience of God. And this encounter, this experience, deeply affects our sense of what is most real and so transforms the context within which we live and move and have our being. In other words, this encounter with God generates a sense of things, a sense of the way things are that we come to have faith in, 
and entrust ourselves to. It gives, if you like, a new foundation, a new ground for our being and action in the world. So I want to say a bit more about the nature of this picture of reality, this faith in how things are. And, and later on we'll, we'll start to see what becomes possible as we learn faith fully, full of faith, to source our lives here. John Mayne insists that when meditation leads us to experience God, this is not an encounter with God as, as an object of our perception. <coughs> kind of over there, separate from us. He says, absorption in God means sharing in the infinite expansion of consciousness that is God's essential nature, God's love. And so what, what he means, I think, is that experiencing God is not so much about having a particular experience, as if we might say, oh, there you are. Oh, I just had an experience of God. <laughs> and I think, you know, when we talk about meditation leading us into an experience of God and we immediately feel like, oh, but not me, like I haven't had that, partly what we might have in mind is an experience like that, like I could just say, oh, that was an experience of God. But that's not what he's meaning. Rather, it's about having the ground or the context for all our experience shift. So it's not a single experience of that was God, but something shifts in the whole background, the whole ground of all our experience. What we call God becomes for us that in which everything else is contained. And this is the experience into which the disciples were drawn through their relationship with Jesus. And I think their witness of what their experience was helps us to say a little bit more about its key, couple of its key features that I want to draw out today. So the first, first thing to say is that to experience God which is to experience love, is to experience ultimate reality as, as for us, as on our side, as gift and grace. It's to experience ourselves as at home, belonging, given a place. For the disciples, it happened like this. Jesus had been among them as their teacher and companion. He'd claimed a particular relationship with God as his father, a kind of intimate relationship. 
and he'd lived a certain kind of life. A life practicing radical hospitality and including those who'd been excluded by the religious and legal system of their time. He'd gone about proclaiming forgiveness, manifesting mercy and healing, and teaching with an unusual degree of cut-through, authority and liberty. As you know, as a consequence, he'd fallen foul of the religious and political authorities and been executed. And yet, astoundingly and mysteriously, death turned out not to have been the end of him. And when he returned to his disciples, crucified and yet somehow alive and still bearing peace, they began to understand that who he was and all that he had lived and taught cannot be brought to an end. It began to dawn on them that there is a reality that cannot be controlled or cancelled by the violence of the world. And that this reality is inexhaustibly inviting and hospitable, creating space for them. That's what it, that's, that was their experience of the resurrection. And it's in this context, I think, that we can hear the, the kind of astonishing and astonished words of St. Paul. If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? And he goes on, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You can hear the delight here, as well as the wonder. It's like, who to thunk that? This sense of confidence in being indefeasibly held in an utterly gracious reality. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so, these other phrases familiar to us from the New Testament flow out of that, that deep experience. The terrors that once had us in thrall are shown to be without ultimate reality. They don't disappear, but they're not ultimate. Even death has no more dominion. Perfect love has cast out fear. For freedom, Christ has set us free. 
So that's one dimension of the Christian vision, the Christian experience of reality. And the second is that this God who is for us and who met us in Jesus continues to be actively at work here and now. The Spirit of God, breathed out by Christ, is even now working to reconcile all things with a power that is independent of us. And to the extent that we open ourselves to this power, this energy, we ourselves are changed and enabled to participate with it. We are living in what the tradition calls eschatological time, the time of the end, the time of fulfilment. And the shape of God's future, where things are headed, is already known to us in the resurrection of Jesus. It, it will be a welcoming, forgiving, healing, recreating future. And we're invited to live our lives now in the sure and certain hope of that future, participating through the spirit in its realisation. So no wonder with that picture of the nature of ultimate reality, the early church spoke so boldly and radically and freely. No wonder they were liberated from the constraints of fear and the law and able to see themselves and everyone else as forgiven, loved, and one with all people, children of the same gracious Father. The only tiny, teensy, wincy little problem is that in the face of how things go in the world, it's a pretty damn difficult picture to sustain. It seems literally incredible, unbelievable. And the daily news seems a daily challenge to its truthfulness. What can it mean to say that God is for us, utterly, and that the Spirit is at work to transform and heal when boats of asylum seekers sink in the waters between Indonesia and Australia, or when children are trafficked for sex and the Antarctic ice shelves crack? And it's very hard not to think at times that this is just some fantasy, some wishful thinking that avoids the hard truths of suffering and pointless waste. Well, it is hard to maintain this vision of faith and to know how to live from it authentically 
and not just in some kind of avoidant la-la land. It might be important to remember that it doesn't seem to have been much easier for those first Christian communities. Although clearly they had undergone a powerful transformation of their sense of God and of themselves, and those words I read from St Paul, despite that, they quickly suffered misunderstanding, division, persecution and hardship. And maintaining their faith in the supposedly, allegedly, indestructible energy of love and life in the face of all this was painful and the temptation to give up on it was clearly considerable. Which is why Paul is always speaking about the virtues of perseverance and faithfulness in contexts that could easily provoke despair. And the letter to the Hebrews emphasises that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So what about us and the context for our living, our action? Can we believe this story, this story of faith about the nature of ultimate reality and entrust ourselves to it? And can we confess it, not just with our lips, because that's what we've always done, but really source our lives here, act from it? Well, again, Quote John Main, he says, we are indeed invited to know this as a truth, to know this vision for ourselves from the inside as a living experience and a source of energy and vocation. And he says, meditation will lead us into this knowledge. How it will do that is not because it gives us some sublime spiritual moment with visions of angels and the voice of God booming in our ears. I mean, maybe occasionally, but <laughs> not as a routine matter. So it will do it not because we'll get zapped, but because it takes us by way of the same journey that Jesus made in his human life to the Father and that the disciples themselves made from Good Friday to Pentecost. I began this morning's talk by making a bit of a distinction between how meditation affects the person who acts by shifting our self-oriented acquisitive habits of being, that, that bit, and, and then talking about how meditation affects our sense of ultimate reality, affects our sense of the field of action. But now we can see that there's a relationship between these two things. Because the contemplative practice where we are changed, this practice of self-dispossession and detachment, is what leads us to the place 
where we might encounter God as ultimate reality. For the disciples, this happened when, after Jesus' death, they found themselves stripped of their old identities. Because they'd been going around with him, they'd become outsiders to their, formal, their former religious belonging and community, and they couldn't go back in the same way. But at the same time, the glory and honour and positions of power that they'd hoped for from Jesus sitting at his right and left hand and all of that, that hadn't materialised either. It looked like Jesus had just failed. So they're frightened and scattered and confounded. They don't even know what to wish for, what to hope for anymore. And it's precisely here in this place of dereliction and profound disorientation that the risen Jesus meets them and calls them anew. It's here that he creates their faith, if you like. He, he, he occurs to them and they realise what reality really is. Well, for us... The practice of meditation is a way of entering into this same process, this process of letting go our old identities. It's a kind of dying. And as we surrender this self-sufficient selves, we come to the naked ground of our being. And it's here in humility, and poverty, and simplicity, that we gradually, and often almost imperceptibly, find ourselves being drawn into the life of Christ, being drawn into this same experience that the disciples had, usually much less dramatically but we're drawn into this same trust in the Father. We find ourselves restored to ourselves at home. Many of us know that experience through meditation. I'm, I'm coming home to myself, which is the same thing as coming home to God. We have a sense of belonging and we begin to realise we are loved. And one day, we may discover that even in times of great distress, confusion and despair, we are almost despite ourselves faithful in the sense that we can't give it up, even if part of us wants to or part of us doesn't believe it. But it's as if we cannot but keep holding, however tenuously, onto this hope that we have grasped. We can't give up on this love. 
And we find ourselves resonating with Peter's response to Jesus when he is tempted to give up. Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So let me just begin to summarise some of this. I've been focusing on the impact of our picture of reality on how we live. I've been saying that Christian faith offers us a particular vision of God and of human possibilities in relation to God. And that when this sense of things is alive for us, it does transform how we act. And we see from the New Testament that it leads those full of faith to trust in abundance rather than to fear scarcity. It leads them to be generous and courageous in the face of hostility and threat. And to trust that there is a direction, a trajectory to our lives that is given. God is present and active. The power of reconciliation is at work in the world. And this invites us to live and act in hope even in situations that seem hopeless. And meditation leads us to this experience of reality, this possibility of faith. But there's something very important about the character of this vision, this faith. It's that it is never ours to control and never our possession. And so never able to be used as ideology or a source of domination. Of course, the church has a very mixed history <laughs> in this regard and has plenty of times used the word faith as a stick with which to beat people over the head. But true faith can never become rigid or a stick because we are faithful and we deepen our faith only to the extent that we're willing to keep letting go, keep being dispossessed and handed over into this reality that is always larger than we are. Faith is a place we stand, it's a perspective on the world and a ground for action, but it is, John Main says, a groundless ground. We never get to the end of it and we never own it. A powerful experience of this for me happens when I'm on pilgrimage. I've recently returned from walking 900 kilometres on the way of St James. And every day we cast ourselves onto the road, not knowing where we will sleep 
or exactly where we will find food or what the day will bring. And the practice of faithful pilgrimage is to trust open-heartedly in the way and then to receive what's given. That's why John Mayne speaks of faith as casting out into the depth of God and allowing ourselves to fall back into our source. And in this vision, to be rooted in the ground of God involves being open to continuous deepening ourselves, immersed in a process of continuous conversion with all the vulnerability that that entails. And action that flows from here has particular qualities. It's humble, open-hearted, and non-attached. It's aware of mystery and its own limits. It's also responsive and hopeful and confident. It involves a sense of participating in something that is already underway, of being drawn into the encompassing current of God's reconciling love. And in coming days, we'll focus in a bit more depth on, on the nature of action, the kinds of action that are sourced in this contemplative practice and faith. For today, though, I, I encourage you to spend some time becoming more aware and more present to the visions of reality that are operative in your life, the tacit sense of things that you live out of. Many of us profess Christian faith and in many parts of our lives this vision of things, this confidence, this faith that God is for us and that God is at work, that is operative. We do live responsive to that. But I know for myself there are always pockets of my life that are yet to be fully converted, as it were, <laughs> that are yet to really entrust myself to this. There are contexts and relationships in which fear of scarcity or anxiety or a kind of falsifying story shapes who I am and what I do, how I act. And where I haven't yet really dared to cast myself, as John Maine says, into the depths. <coughs> I think perhaps a good way of getting in touch with where these pockets might be is to reflect on places you feel stuck or frustrated or thwarted. Think about what is the way of being you bring to these areas of your life and what might this say to you about what's, what's there in the background, what tacit vision of reality you're working from. 
Today is the first full day of our retreat. Let us dare to be open to the Spirit of God showing us to ourselves, even where this can be painful, or we'd actually rather not know. Thank you very much. And let us listen for what it might look like to entrust our lives ever more completely to the vision of reality revealed in Jesus and given to us as we give ourselves.